mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today, we are joined by Yardley Smith. Yardley is known as the voice of Lisa Simpson on The Simpsons, among so many other memorable roles. Today, I'm going to ask her about her health and exercise routine and get her insights. You can find her on Instagram at Yardley underscore Smith. Welcome to American Glutton. I am so thrilled to be here. As you know, I have the utmost respect and admiration for you, Ethan. Thank you. Having worked together on this movie that we did, Gossamer Folds, and then I saw you had a podcast and I started listening and... I'm just, I believe, as I have a podcast as well, and my premise is, though, no matter what the podcast is, everybody has a story. Everybody thinks their story isn't that interesting, and everybody is wrong. Yes. I love that, too. And you're into your sixth season of podcasting. We are. We're two and a half years old but because we, we do about two seasons a year. Okay. But we're about to drop season six. That's awesome. It's pretty good. It's called yeah. Small Town Dicks. And all of our, it's true crime, and all of our cases are told by the detectives who investigated them. Okay. And and it's you and two detectives. Yes, yes. So I co-host with and tw- identical twin detectives, Dan and Dave. But they, they're not, they're the detectives that did all so it's no. just no right that's so what they, I thought. yeah sorry no they so they we always have a few cases of theirs that we feature each season but um then we go to other small towns to get other detectives to tell their stories and the premise really was big time crime is happening in small towns everywhere just with less frequency but the right. same level of depravity and reckless disregard for human life as it is in a big city yeah and because people would say i remember when i got to know Dan and Dave and 
people, you know, who don't live in a in a small town and say, so what do you do, you rescue cats and stuff? Right. And you're like, first of all, so insulting. Right. Second of all, fuck no, that's not what they do. <laughs> yeah. You know. People are getting killed. They're, Stuff's people getting are stolen. the same horrible things to people as they do in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, anywhere. Yeah. So. I almost think it's, look, you know, you're in a big city and you go like this terrible thing happened and you go like, okay, you got 10 million people piled in together. Something bad has got to happen. It's almost more interesting in a small town because there was a great British show that was like a small town and there was a murder and suddenly everyone's a suspect and you know them all. Oh, yes. Was that with the um, uh, um, Olivia Coleman and that other guy? Yes. yes I great watched show. that. Such a good show. Yeah, I can't but remember the name of it. Th- that to me is actually more interesting than like we got a a bale of hay and we're just going <laughs> to weed through it and find the the rotten hay, hay, hay piece of the rot- hay. <laughs> rotten hay <laughs> rotten hay there's a rotten <laughs> stalk of hay in there the rotting yeah. hay at the bottom the one that's just about to combust on its own and set fire to the whole thing by the way i often i often think of bales of hay as hails of bay is that weird? Yeah. Hmm, Maybe I've got great. a little hint of dick slut. There. Dyslexia. There it is. <laughs> yeah. So small time dicks. I really like that. I think that's cool. I Thank think you. it's fascinating. And just, and stuff like that has to play into it where it's like. It's very claustrophobic. Yeah. You know, whereas in a big city, police officers can fade back into the fabric of the city, into their communities. In a small town, as you say, everybody knows everybody. You've probably arrested somebody that you know that you went to school with, maybe that you dated, maybe that you blah, 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 and on and on and on. And there is, um, and now with social media, of course, there is very little time for a crime to happen and for law enforcement to be able to notify the victims before they hear about it on social media. I mean, all of these things play into what it means to be in an environment that's so much more compact. Right, right, yeah. Social media in Los Angeles I mean, I guess some aspects could play a part, but really there's just so many people talking about so much stuff. Right. And yeah. and if, a, you know, if a crime took place, let's say two miles from this studio, we probably wouldn't hear about it until we saw it on the news if it was big enough. Mm-hmm. Right. I bet there is a crime taking place within two miles. <laughs> Quite of possibly. Now, like a really bad crime. No doubt. Be. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. I, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Um. You, I have a question. You, and I'm, I can only be totally sure of my own perspective. That's it. Everything else (laughs) is conjecture and assumption and like doing study and talking to people. But I think there has been, for me, you know, I have four daughters. I have a wife. I, I think there I don't know whether it's external or internal or marketed or societal or constructed or what it is, but I definitely know that um, my perception is that women have a tougher time as far as outward aesthetics go, materially, how they appear, certainly than men. Now I say that and I, I have all the mental illness of like <laughs> self-loathing and, and like constantly wanting to look better and looking in a mirror and and not recognizing everything I've done and just seeing all the stuff I need to do. So I want to know from you, especially being in Hollywood, which is 
a huge part of it is appearance. Has that played a major role in your life? Yes, huge. Although I remember listening to your episode with um, Kevin Connolly. Yeah. And I think you said you, you your first diet was when you were eight or five. nine. Five. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. So I, and you were put on that diet by your parents. Grandparents. Grandparents. Yeah. And I put myself on my first diet when I was nine. Wow. Self-imposed. Yeah. And it was wow. brutal. I mean, it was, first of all, I believe to a certain extent, and unless, as you you know, were saying with um, Tom Keir, unless you really have all your ducks in a bucket, right? What are those things? You have to have um, awareness, willingness, and uh, preparation. Yeah. And so unless you have all of those things lined up, you will set yourself up to fail. And so, of course, I didn't know that at nine. I mean, I'm 55 and I feel like I know that I didn't maybe know that on Sunday, but I might know it again tomorrow. You know, it's kind of comes and goes. And so, um, so of course, it was uh, deprivation bred desire. Right. And then by the time I was 14, um, I was bulimic. And then I was bulimic for 25 years. Right. And, but the body dysmorphia started, I went on diet when I was nine because I wasn't a chubby kid at all, but I was not pleased with what I saw in the mirror. And somehow at, by that age, I already knew or sort of, um, I, I sort of had gathered, I guess, from the kinds of messages that women get uh, in the wide world. And so that I was when I was nine, I was like it was like 1973 um, that I was not tall and willowy and skinny. And, you know, I was itty bitty and I was sort of solid. Right. And then there's the. You know, as far as height and these things, the only thing we can actually like control is how much food we eat. Right. Right. That's it. Right. And I remember you saying when you were talking about, um, you know, drugs and alcohol and <clears throat> your struggles with that, while those addictions are not uh, lighter than a food addiction, you can actually live without drugs and alcohol. You cannot live without food. Right. And so <clears throat> I do think it pro it poses a a specific kind of complication in terms of how you get past whatever your um, blockade is with food. Yeah, I, I remember having this thought about cigarettes to 20 years ago um, and having the thought that like cigarettes are actually harder to quit than and, and maybe not so much today because they're so kind of like, uh, you know, in Los Angeles, they're so kind of looked down upon. And New York and most of the big cities I go to, people don't like smokers. Like you got, you get a dirty look if you're smoking <laughs> a cigarette. You know what I mean? And so, but 20 years ago when I smoked, everywhere you go, people are smoking and every store you go into, they're selling cigarettes. And so like drugs, it's like, you know, I'm going to stop doing something and I'm going to avoid these very specific places where I know drugs exist. And then it's like not there. You know what I mean? Right. It's only in my head at that point. But to be constantly reminded every time you get gas, every time you turn on the television, 
every time you walk outside pretty much in a city, you know, unless you're in the country somewhere and there's no McDonald's, there's food everywhere. (laughs) And so it's this like really kind of strange thing to navigate. It is very, um, I, I found it quite, uh, difficult. And and when I was, um, bulimic, I, it, some months were far worse than others. You know, it was steady for those 25 years. And I remember turning 39, being 39 and thinking, okay, I've, I've, I've decided a thousand times that I can kick this on my own and I haven't been able to do it. I saw, you know, there'd be sort of an ebb and flow to it a little, but never went away. Um, whenever things got, uh, upsetting for me, food was the thing that I would go to. I would binge and purge. And so I thought I'm going to have to buckle down and I need help. So I enrolled myself in a an outpatient program program at UCLA and it met eight hours a week. Wow. So it was basically it was group therapy, but it, you had to one of the things you had to do was eat together, of course. Wow. Which for anybody who has an eating disorder, whatever your eating disorder is eating is a very private ritual. So that was, of course, one of the challenges. One of the other challenges that was huge for me was you had to do something social. So you had to make the goal, you had to say it out loud, and then you were, you know, come back the next week because, or from, you know, we met Tuesdays and Thursdays. So you didn't have to accomplish it by Thursday if you said it on Tuesday, you get what I'm saying. So anyway, you had to come back and say, yes, I did that or no, I didn't. And here's why I couldn't. Um, and then of course, you know, how did it go? If you are, were anorexic there, it was all women in that group, interestingly, though not surprisingly, I think. Um, and if you were bulimic, you know, how did the binging and purging go? Um, oh, but I had lied by omission because I had been, you know, I'd gone to therapy. I'd so many things. I'd been married twice. I had said to both my husbands, oh, yes, it's much better. And my trainer, who I still have, who I adore, you know, it's, oh, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm having a really good patch. Big, fat fucking lie. Right. You know, and when do you have your come to Jesus moment and go, okay, this, okay, all right. You know what? I'm face down in the mud. Now, what are you going to do about that? Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. For me, the the beginning of this journey was kind of a, a sense which was similar to AANA. And, and it's kind of like, I don't have this. Like, I need to turn over the keys to this kingdom to somebody else, even if just for a minute. Yes. And like, follow that path until I can take over. Yes, yes. And, and there was also, I don't know if it was for you, but certainly for me, when I enrolled in that program, there's this great feeling of shame that you, that I, speaking for myself, that I couldn't, that I couldn't kick it by myself, that I had to bring in these external, um, this external help. And, and I didn't, I'm not a joiner. I don't, you know, I don't like it. I don't want to. I don't want to. Right. But I was also one of the oldest in that eating disorders group. Um, And 
I think I just, I, I do have, I think one of the things that's made me quite successful in my career is a, an ability to have a singular focus. And so if I decide something, then my screw it, let's do it attitude will get me pretty far. But what I learned from your podcast was what, and why, and what I sort of realized, especially when I, in that conversation with, um, Tom Keir was, Oh, now I know why things fucking blew up when they blew up because, Oh, Yardley, of the three things you really need to have in place, you had one. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which was the awareness right. or the willingness. Sure. Right. And maybe not even as much awareness and preparedness as I would necessarily need. And so, um, Whereas I had sort of flown by the seat of my pants in so many areas of my life. And I always often say my career in many ways is sort of this great big house with no foundation because I had no training. I was so successful right out of the gate, right out of high school. The problem was when things started to slow down, I still had The Simpsons, thank God. I love that character. I love the show. It's been a gift in so many ways. It is an amazing um, show. And the fact that it is like, the it, it is one of the rare things that kind of, not not entire, I'm sure it has followed people's entire yes. lifetimes where it's just, it's always been there. Mm -hmm. There are literally, so we're about to start recording season 32 Oh my God. Which means, and we have writers on the show who grew up watching The Simpsons who thought my dream job would be to work on The Simpsons, but they won't still be on by the time I'm old enough. You're like, oh, yes, yes, we will. Yes. Really and wild. now their kids are teenagers. You just go, this is impossible. Yeah. It so is. it's it has impossible. been a gift in every possible way. But when my on camera career, which I had was like gangbusters when I first started out, it really started to peter out at about year 13, 14. I had no idea what to do. I hadn't had really, I had great agents, but I didn't have any mentors per se. And so that's what I mean about a house with no foundation. I sort of, I hadn't, it wasn't that I didn't have to do the work because I always work really hard and meet my opportunities with preparedness. But I, if, if I didn't, if I wasn't presented the opportunity, I had no idea what to do. Yeah. I think it's a, <clears throat> It's a really bizarre thing, uh, especially for actors. Like, a, if you're a writer and your career in writing television starts to go, you still can write. Like, even if you're just writing for yourself, like, that's a thing. There's really no point in doing monologues <laughs> to a mirror. You know what I mean? Like, I, I've never felt any kind of artistic release practicing lines what do you to mean? myself. It's, not, it's never done it for me. It requires an audience, yes. you know? It would be like baking a cake and then sitting and watching it rot. How, oh, how dare you? Yeah. See? Somebody's no. got to eat this thing we've yes. made. Um, and maybe that's true for writers, but I know... Uh, some of my musician friends can very happily just practice their musician, their instrument all day long and get something from that, you know, and right. they have a, a legitimate skill. My skill is I'll lie to you. <laughs> that's what I can do. I can just lie to you and try to convince you of something that's not true. And that's about it. So I totally empathize with that. It's a it's a weird feeling to have when like and I get it every time I have a break from work. I'm like, 
what Was do I do? It? Should I go be a security guard? I'm a pretty big dude. Like, <laughs> what do I do? I don't know. I got to get another job. That's why I'm so glad you're doing this because you have so much to add and so much wisdom. And what's lovely about you, and I think unexpected, when we worked on the movie together, my experience of you is that you were very private and you're, but you work your fucking ass off, but it looks effortless. You show up on time, you do your work beautifully. But then you don't need to stand around and sort of carouse with everybody. You're just like, I'm done. My work here is done. And then off you go. Right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm really not a super social person. Which is right. And which is great and fine. And uh, I had complete respect for that and such a deep understanding of that as well. I'm much more of a people pleaser than you are. And so I just sort of stood back in admiration as you would come in, do your thing beautifully, and then fuck off and go away. (laughs) Um, But what I love about this podcast is now we get to, you're also, but if we, if we can get you in a, in a setting like this, where you feel comfortable and you, I feel like you have a purpose and a mission that you are so candid and you're so open with everything that you've been through. My earliest memories are literally of being put on a diet. So it has been something that has always kind of been there. And I was never comfortable talking about it. I would uh, never, you know, the amount of movies that I did where the word fat was used, that was not, I was not interested in doing that. I just, it made me terrifically uncomfortable. Um, and then when I lost weight, again, I was like horrified to talk about it. It was not something I wanted to talk about it. Why is that? The first time I was never super comfortable with my body. Well, there was kind of a two prong thing. I, I wasn't ever really comfortable with my body. I was the way I was losing weight was so extreme and so unsustainable that it was just another compulsion. Right. It was like I traded compulsions. And the first kind of uh, brush with the media I had was negative, was um, I, I was riding bicycles every day. And the first time it was ever referenced was the downside of weight loss. And it was pictures of me in spandex and and they were showing some loose skin on my legs. And I was like, fuck, fuck these guys. Oh my God. I'm not, they can go to hell. I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not going to participate in this. Um, and then this time around, I did it much slower. I really got super calculated about it and I, and I'm comfortable. And, and also like we're sitting here in my buddy's, basically it's not <laughs> literally, but basically my buddy Kevin's living room. And we're just having a conversation and it's all people that I'm comfortable with and, you know, either people I have questions for or I have something I want to hear from them. And and I'm comfortable having a conversation in those terms. Yeah. I still am a little bit uncomfortable doing press and I've done some press for this and I'm still like, what the hell am I doing? And what what is the... What is that? What is that about? Do you know? Because you're so articulate and you're so incredibly well-read and you have so much to offer. What is the um, anxiety about? I don't know. I don't know. I th- I think it's just... Um, is it a disdain for the whole everything? 
You know, there's also the the idea that somebody's going to do a like I, I gotcha or ask yeah. you something that makes that's introverting and makes me uncomfortable. Like I, you know, I don't know. I know here I have no intentions to ever do that to somebody. So this is a quote unquote safe space, and not that I need safe spaces, but when you're doing something strictly to promote and there's that potential, I'm like. I got to be on my toes. I'm not just relaxed and having a conversation anymore, you know, just because I have been through like, well, let's talk about all the problems due to this. And it's like, or we could just talk about the benefits. Yes, You know what I mean? Like, I'm happier. That's pretty much it. Like, (laughs) we could just talk about that. Right. You know? That's fair. Yeah. Um, but yes, so thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm, I really like just having conversations. I'm interested in people. I am too. Yeah. I'm so interested. I just, I really want to know what makes you tick. I always say on our podcast, I want to know how you do what you do and why you do it. Yeah. That's sort of, that's That's, the whole everything. And I think, uh, going back to your podcast, it's super interesting when you're dealing with criminals because I've. You know, I've been arrested in my life, not for anything major and not for 30 plus years, but right. But I don't go through my life committing major crimes every day. You know, <laughs> I, if I if I had to chalk them up and be super honest with you, I speed a little bit in my car. You know what I mean? Like, that's probably as bad as I get. And so, you know, I have all kinds of weird moral problems with law. But then I go like, well, if you have a group of people who are all together and they agree that there should be some structure and we're going to pretend that that's something real because whatever we decide is real is real at the end of the day. What makes somebody want to go against that? You know what I mean? I agree. I'm, I was such a rule follower as a kid. I, I still am. I feel like that Lisa Simpson and I are sort of one person in that regard. <laughs> But I am, because people ask me all the time when I do interviews for our podcast and I feel, and they say, you know, Yardley, why true crime? Because, you know, Lisa Simpson. I'm like, <laughs> yes, all right. I'm hopefully a, a slightly more well-rounded human being than my one beloved character who I do adore. Um, but I feel like if there are people who, <clears throat> excuse me, if there are people who aren't interested or willing to observe the rules that the rest of us observe in order for society to function well. I am comforted by the fact that there are is another group of people who are willing to put the train back on the tracks, who are willing to run toward all of the things that the rest of us run from, by and large. And all of the detectives that we speak to say it's a calling, it's not a job. So it's a very, very specific kind of mindset. It is not, they do not, the the fact that, as you were saying, you know, that you had been arrested a few times for more or less minor, minor infractions, that even that, the their ability to rob somebody of their freedom is something they take incredibly seriously. And so, and the other thing I learned that was really fascinating and I think is sort of underrepresented in these stories about law enforcement um, in this day and age is how many dominoes have to line up perfectly, I mean perfectly, in order for justice to be served. Hmm. 
and that a detective can have all of the evidence, have done extraordinary work for months and months on a case. Finally, we got our guy. It's irrefutable and the DA won't file. Right. I mean, you just like my head popped off. Yeah. So um, I just have great. I, I mean, I was a fan of law enforcement before, but I have I've garnered a, a really deep abiding um, forever respect for these men and women who do this job. And I also, I want to know my side of the table is all about. So if you do that, if you are the person who's going to do CPR on a baby and it doesn't work, or you are the person who has to go to the children and say, I'm sorry, your father murdered your mother. How do you go home at night? Right. Where does that go? Yeah. And so those are the kinds of questions too, that I'm fascinated in. Because again, it's about the story. The podcast, excuse me, the podcast is the frame. The people are the picture. Yeah. So whether it's your journey about food and fitness, mine about true crime, you know, somebody else's about here's how you clear all the junk out of your house, whatever it is. Who are you and why are you doing that? What makes you tick? Yeah. And I think people are really interesting and, and especially in a format where we can you know, get to see a little nuance, which doesn't exist in mainstream media. It's sound bites. And then we're supposed to just like go like, well, let's sum up that person's character. Yeah, let's extrapolate just from that one sentence from those 45 seconds. Yeah. So you go to this group. Yeah. How how long was that process? 13 months. 13 months. And is it a thing of like, we're going to do this in 13 months or did it just took 13 months? If for me, after 13 months, I thought, okay, I get it. I have all the tools in my toolbox. Now it's up to me to use them or not. And then I would say it was probably another year and a half, two years until I really was far away. Pretty like I could say... Uh, you know, because as you say, once you have an addiction, you're not really ever cured. But I was far enough away from that repetitive behavior of binging and purging that I felt like I could actually start to reframe my my relationship with food. Yeah. Um, and for me, my binge and purge, I was actually, I was not skinny when I was binging and purging. I was as heavy as I ever get um, and because I would only binge and purge on sweets. So it, here's the truth. You cannot consume like 7,000 calories and throw them up over the next. I also wasn't a very good vomiter, just to be quite candid. So it would take me, I don't know, an hour, 90 minutes after that to sort of get what I felt like, okay, I've purged it all. But guess what? I think I learned that as soon as food hits your tongue, your body starts to, you know, send insulin right and now like and if it's if it's had if you don't need all that shit it's going to get stored as fat so it's no surprise but i could not get it right i wouldn't get it i just thought no no this time i'll get it i'll get it i'll I'll get it all out and i won't be fat a good amount of it is i mean i don't know i I don't know the science behind it but probably a bunch is getting digested heck yeah i mean i think yes yeah so i after that, I I did lose weight. It, I didn't, you know, I didn't lose a ton of weight. The skinniest I've ever been was when I broke my neck, um, which I remember on your on the little thing they sent me was 
one of your questions was, have you had any, anything happen to your body basically most recently? I broke my neck four years ago. Whoa. Yeah, it was big. I'll tell you in a second. Okay. Um, so, but what there was the psychological journey of sort of getting past the behavior of the addiction was completely unexpected. I would dream about the foods I would binge and purge on. So I dream about ice cream and cake and candy. And when I was binging and purging, I would go to different supermarkets to get all my junk, right? All my supplies so that I wouldn't buy it all in one place and be humiliated. And if somebody commented on, wow, I'd be like, yeah, well, you know, I'm in a party. I'm in a party with a bunch of people. Right. Really? I mean, it's 11 o'clock at night. Well, it could be a party tomorrow, you know? Um, So there was that. There was the grief of, oh God, what will I do? Like, what will I, because it takes a lot of time to binge and purge. It's time consuming and it's isolating. And I thought, oh, oh no, like now what will I do? Right. Um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of emotional fallout that was, I was completely unprepared for. Yeah. I think there are I, aspects, um, like, 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 uh, I think about smoking cigarettes and I think like you actually miss holding something in your hand, which when you're thinking about smoking a cigarette, that's kind of the last thing that you're like, I'm going to miss this aspect of smoking. The act of smoking is taking a mouthful of smoke and inhaling it. Right. And then you have these secondary things that also become what I need to create new habits to take up the space of all these things that I wasn't even considering being a part of. Like the idea that you now have this extra time on your hands, that's a wild thought that I would never kind of associate with it. You know, I mean, it's not something I totally understand because I haven't gone through, but hearing you talk about it, if I was just to like set out my understanding of it, the last thing I would think is like, when getting rid of this, you got a bunch of time from this that you got to figure out how to fill. Yes. And, and the really, the layer below that is if I'm not going to do that, now I'm going to have to deal with the thing that drove me to do that. And now I have all this extra time. Right. So that was, I think, the real fear and and part of the thing that kept me coming back year after year after year when I would resolve to kick it and then I would not binge and purge for, you know, two months and then shit would go sideways. I would, you know, work my ass off to get a part in a movie or TV or something and then I wouldn't get it. And then as much rejection as we get as actors, um, in, in some ways, I don't think at least for me, I, I didn't, I didn't get used to it. I just learned to recover from it more quickly. Those disappointments. Yeah. Right. It wasn't that it hurt any less. If you threw your everything behind preparation for a role that was really meaningful to you. And by the way, that's days, you know, of work. And then you go in, what do you got, Ethan? What would you say? Like 10 minutes tops, right? Yeah. And they put you on tape and then literally no feedback. Right. Mm -hmm. So you need to figure out how to 
manage that disappointment and the waiting and the extra, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that for me was really, really scary. Um, in some ways I had to, you know, I had to face myself and because I would get, it was like, I would get high. It was like I had a, there was a real euphoria in the binging and purging. Yeah. And I think there are uh, dopamine triggers that can be brought into all of this. Like even just going to the supermarket thinking I'm about to fill my cart or I'm going to go down the, whatever it is for you, the, the candy aisle or the ice cream aisle, all of every single one of those is going to be a little rush of dopamine. Um, And so you got to kind of factor all of that in, you know? Yes. Like I would have fun planning out my drive home based on like, if I go this way, I I get this cheeseburger. If I go this way, I get this (laughs) cheeseburger. Am I willing to drive way out of the way for a veggie dog? And I don't even care about veggie dogs. (laughs) But Astro Burger has a decent veggie dog. How weird is that? But I'll go get one. You know, um, am I going to drive into Eagle Rock to get a hamburger with pastrami on it? How about that? <laughs> um, but all of those things like, well, I need to work on planning something else that's constructive or productive or facilitates my life because I actually enjoy planning stuff. You know what I mean? Who yes. knew? I never would have thought that. I, you know, um, all of those things are wild. So you do 13 months, you're working on new habits, you're figuring all of that out. And then what's life like? Um, it was, uh, it was, it was dark for a while and, and kind of, I think I realized that I'd been, holding my breath for years, really, in many ways. And I still get that way sometimes if I feel overwhelmed. I, I'll sort of, I'll be in the car and they'll be like, oh, really, Yardley, you haven't taken a deep breath in like a week. So maybe just start with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I had, I, I by the way, I already had a trainer at that point by the time I went to this eating disorders program. And I actually stopped working with the trainer for um, most of that year. I kind of had to peel all of the layers back and just kind of focus on one thing. And part of, because I've been, I've been an exercise junkie and, and, and sort of over-exercise has also been a way to sort of, you know, God damn it, you're going to get your body, you know, in that, you're going to fit into that, whatever. And um, it's just, it's barbaric and it's brutal and unforgiving. And so I, I said, you know what, I need to press pause here for a second so that I could try to be a little gentler with myself, which is, is not something I excel at. Yeah. Um, And then... You know, I and then I had a nutritionist. Part of the outpatient program was you had to go to a nutritionist. You had to sort of learn to eat better again. And meanwhile, I'm a quite a good cook. So I already knew. And, and the thing about people with eating disorders often is that we know a lot about food. We've counted all those calories. We have, you know, I remember you said you've been on every diet. I went on the Beverly Hills diet with the, excuse me, with the pineapple. Um, I've had food delivery where portions are all meted out for you. 
which both of those things work. But in terms of a lifestyle, is it sustainable? The answer is no, at least not for me. So um, I actually lost quite a bit of weight because I did a meal delivery service after I left that eating disorders group. That was sort of really exciting. And the food was controlled. I sort of only ate what they gave me. But guess what? Then I started to, I was married at the time. I started to steal the two cookies from my husband's (laughs) thing. So really, again, you just had to be, there's hypervigilance that comes with any addiction to food because it's everywhere. Yeah. I think it, I think, um, there is that line too, where just in the terms you put it in, I started to steal those cookies from my husband's thing. And, and I go like, I recognize in myself the minute I cross a line and, and it's, it's just the doing something that I believe or perceive to be the wrong thing. I can sit here and make going and getting a cheeseburger okay. I can make it fit my diet. I can I can make it not a bad thing. And if I do it that way, it doesn't mess me up. It's so much better. So much better. If I sneak it, if I don't do it in that way, that's the beginning of the end for me. You're absolutely right. And there's a lot of um, literature, uh, certainly often from nutritionists and people who work, you know, in in weight loss clinics and MDs and stuff like that about how you label your food, right? Good, bad. Right. This either or, this black and white is completely unproductive. It will not serve you. And so you're you're 1,000 gazillion percent right. And like you said um, in, a, in an earlier episode about your, you know, your cheat meal is now a part of your routine, but so is the fact that you plan out your food each day. And if you don't do that, then that's a much tougher day for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think this gets into like morality and perspective on morality. And for I've found that assigning a thing any kind of moral you just kind of go like well that thing could be used morally or immorally but is it immoral it's just a thing it has no you know truly the purpose is however i use it that's what's moral so if this thing and for the longest time it was carbohydrates which just any carbohydrate pretty much that's a a lot of food it's he a said. ton of food it's a huge <laughs> cross yeah which if you look at like the purpose of carbohydrates they're super vital you know what i mean and and yes people do fine on low carb diets that's i'm not dissing that at all but for me it wasn't it wasn't that I'm just going to use fat as an energy source and understand what that means. No, it was, I'm assigning a moral position to carbohydrates. They are bad. Mm. And that is like, how do you win that? Because now it's not even, it's not even about me. It's just about that thing, you know, and it has power over you now. Right. Yeah. Which I've found to be not true. (laughs) Now, (laughs) 
<laughs> there can be people with allergies. There can be people with autoimmune. And I'm not saying this is a universal truth for anyone. This is simply my truth. That's all. So, you know, if, if, if you have an, peanut allergy you can't just decide that you can eat peanuts right i'm not advocating for that that's a different thing um you're you're saying an arbitrary assignment of good or bad to any inanimate object is probably unproductive it was very unproductive for me and i never kind of took i always looked at these kind of positions of like there are certain foods that are bad for me that are so they're for they're bad. And then I would go and look at this other kind of school of thought that was like, no, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your shit together. And it's all just willpower. Right. And I don't think either one of those things is true. I think understanding food, understanding how it works, understanding how your body reacts to food. And then you can use some willpower to navigate that. But it's two very binary position. It's a very binary position or like you can mix it all together and, and, and be the, the guy in charge. Right, right. How, um, what do you eat now? Do you, do you allow yourself to, do you eat sort of the whole spectrum of foods or do you focus on certain things? I eat the whole spectrum of foods the food I would say I eat the least of is fat. I am lo- I'm pretty low fat right now. Um, and I was uh, I was high fat for a long time. I just was not seeing the results physically that I expected to see, and, th- and that came from a very specific reason that I wasn't eating enough protein. And when I increased my protein and I started messing around with carbohydrates, I found like oh. I can actually do a lot more in the gym now. And so it was kind of an easy switch to to reduce the fats a lot. And and I had I had, had this idea about carbohydrates for so long that it was a very scary transition. Yeah. And I've had blood work done every six weeks, just going like, Am I now pre-diabetic? Right. Like, what's this doing to me? This is this poisoning me? And it's not. It's really wild. Now, it could be that I'm still been in a caloric deficit, which I think is like the kind of magical place for your blood to be. And uh, and I exercise a whole bunch, but not obsessively. And so it's just worked. It's been great. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you seen that documentary on Netflix called Game Changers? I I have. I, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating too. I thought that there was, I thought my perception of it was a bunch of people with a moral position and they were trying to use science to justify their moral position. And I do believe that you can find um, an experiment to back up any idea. (laughs) You're probably right. Yeah. And so like, if I wanted to like go do enough research, I could probably show you that just drinking blood and cow's milk (laughs) was the healthiest way to be and show you the tribes in Africa that live that way and go like, look at their cholesterol. It's non-existent and they run 30 miles a day. You know what I mean? Right. At the end of the day, kind of the the through line i've found through through my 
tenure as a professional amateur dieter <laughs> is if your energy exceeds your if your energy output exceeds your energy input you're going to be fine mm-hmm. and for a guy who who really just needed or wanted to lose weight you know Beverly Hills diet. I lost weight. Cabbage soup diet. I lost weight. Right. Oh, cabbage soup. I forgot I did that. <laughs> I forgot. You know, that. Yeah. I, yeah, I lost weight. The diets where I would maybe not lose weight were uh, see a nutritionist, get a blood work done. He says, here are the foods you're not allowed to eat. You can eat the rest in any quantity you want. Yeah, I'm not going to lose weight on that diet. Right, I'm going right. to eat a lot of that stuff. <laughs> uh, keto with no kind of quantity restriction, not going to lose weight. Yeah. I'm going to be dipping sausages in melted Velveeta, and that is how I'm going to live. <laughs> I don't know? know why you wouldn't, right. actually. <laughs> I'm going to be making pizza bites with cream cheese and almond flour and covering them in cheese and sorry, I, I wasn't losing weight. If I then go like, oh, let me add a little bit of this idea that you have to be in an energy restriction or you have to be uh, using more energy than you're consuming, keto worked great. Right. You know? That's really that's really well said. It's so concise. Um, how are your abs? I know that you one of your goals was your abs. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> with overhead lighting... I have abs. Huzzah! This is so good. <laughs> they exist. They're, they're there. But of course, being, uh, having the mind that I have, yeah. they look nothing like I thought they would. And I'm not quite ready for the club cover of Playgirl. <laughs> and so I go like, when is that? When is that guy's abs going to appear? I don't know if they ever appear like that, you know? Right. Um. So I don't know. They're there. They they're they've revealed themselves. Uh, there's only four of them properly, and it takes a little effort to see the other two. And then I hear there's actually eight, which I haven't seen the the last two at all. Yeah, I think I I don't think I've ever seen a, anybody I actually know with eight abs. Yeah, only I'm, on you know the cover of Men's Health, but. Right. I well, that's what that we're guy. shooting for. Okay. That's what we're aiming I'm down. for. Your yeah. arms are incredible. Your arms are like as big as my neck. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like they could be a little bigger. Let's be honest. <laughs> like a little, You're going to have to get custom-made shirts like Dwayne Johnson. Yes. Is that what he does? <laughs> I'm sure of it. Yeah. There is no shirt that has an armhole that big. No. There's no, he this, has yeah. gigantic, yeah. wonderful arms. He That's does. what I want yeah. to covet his arms. <laughs> They're such perfect arms, I think, right? He is a monster. Yeah. yeah. He's a monster. I want to make him look tiny. Okay. No, I'm kidding. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's just hyperbolic. Well, and it's a full-time job, I think. Yeah. Perhaps. How did you break your neck? Uh, so, four years ago, um, I fell down a flight of stairs in a, in a parking garage. Wow. And um, I was by myself, and uh, it was 8 o'clock at night. It was actually right up the street here. Um, And I had forgotten my phone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I just uh, lost my footing and I, f- I remember falling forward and I remember uh, we used to park in the basement of this parking structure. And so I was well familiar with it. And so in some ways it's a little bit like, um, don't they say that car accidents, 80% of them happen a mile away from your home because mm-hmm. you sort of tuned out and now you're not paying that much attention anymore. I think it was some aspect of that. So, but I do remember falling forward and reaching for the railing and missing. And so I, it's a cement, uh, cement stairs and cement walls, cement landing. And I slammed against the wall, which I don't remember, but I do remember coming to in a heap and um, not being able to move at all. And I remember thinking, oh no, that's, that's not good. Because I couldn't even, I thought, okay, wiggle your toes. And I couldn't wiggle my toes. And so I think I must have passed out again. I couldn't, I lost time somehow. When I came to again, I could push myself. And now I could like push myself up on my elbows about five inches, but I couldn't get up. So I started to scream for help. And this little section of um, just outside your studio, this little section of street, these two blocks were dead, dead by eight o'clock at night, right? Nobody around. Nobody used to park in the basement. That's why me and my business partner, Ben, used to park in the basement of this parking structure and um, where we had our monthly parking. And so I'm literally screaming for help and nobody can hear me. And like I said, I forgot my phone. So I finally, at about 10 o'clock, the parking attendant is closing up. And thank God he makes his rounds, right? And he sees me there in a heap. And I'm I'm between floors, right? And um, he looks at me and he goes like, are you all right? I'm like, no, not all right, not all right. <laughs> he says, uh, what do you want me to do? And and everybody's like, you did what, Yardley? I said, I want you to get me an Uber. 
Oh, my God. And he said, I don't have Uber. And I said, okay, I need you to get me a taxi. And then I need you to be a gentleman and help me up. And so he went upstairs to call a taxi. And I, at this point, I was not in pain yet. And I thought to myself, because I could push myself up on my elbows and now I could wiggle my toes, there's no way I broke my neck because if I had, I wouldn't, it would be like when I first came to, right? I would, I would just, I'd be paralyzed. So he helps me up. He puts me in a taxi, but I literally, I mean, I'm walking like a hundred year old woman up these stairs, right? And I'm, and I'm a block away from Cedar sinai a block, and I don't go there. So the taxi driver takes me home, and I'm in so much pain, I'm now audibly breathing. Like, and he's like, are, are, is, are you all right? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I'll be all right once I get home. I just need to, like, get home. At this point, I think I'm just in shock. And um, so he gets me home, and I said, I need you to help me to the front door. So he helps me to the front door. I have two cats. Um, I lived alone at the time and, uh, I get in the house, I feed the cats, but I'm having a lot of trouble bending down, you know, to get the bowl. And then I'm like, okay, this is bad. This is not good. All right. So I go take a shower. I get into bed. But when I tell you I slept for about 30 minutes, it wasn't even sleep. It's no exaggeration. It was now the pain had set in, but not in my neck in my shoulders, from my shoulders all the way down my arms. So I take an Advil, nothing. I have one Vicodin left over from a dental procedure, nothing. Doesn't even put me to sleep. So that was a Friday night. That's Saturday at about six o'clock in the morning. I call my assistant and I say, I need you to come get me. I fell down the stairs and um, and I'm in a lot of pain. And she says, do you need an ambulance? And I said, no, no, I can walk, but I'm in so much pain. And so she is about half an hour away. She comes to get me. And I originally say, I need you to take me to urgent care. And she's like, mm, no, because my ben, my partner, he has a wife and like three, two kids. And so he's they're always going to urgent care. I'm like, seems very urgent. Yeah. We should go to urgent care. He's right. Like, no, Yardley, that's for earaches, you know, right. and yeah. when your kid has a fever. So um, we go to the emergency room at Cedars, and because I walk into the emergency room, albeit slowly and like I'm a 100-year-old woman, I don't get a bed for about an hour and a half. It's not even that busy, but I don't see, you know, I'm not bleeding from anywhere. And now I'm in so much pain, I can't, you know, I can sit for about a minute and then I have to get up and then I sort of move around a little bit and I'm so thirsty. My assistant, she says she knew something was really wrong because when I said, can I have some water? She said, um, no. Mm. And so I finally get a bed. They finally, then they don't take x-rays for, you know, for like another half an hour. Then they take x-rays and I'm not, not kidding. They turn absolutely white as a sheet. And now people are starting to come into the room and then they take more x-rays. And now I'm like, okay, something's not right. Something's not good. And then they put a block on my head and they wheel me back to the little cubby that I was, you know, my whatever the little bed I had. 
And the doctor on call says to me, there is no other way to say this, but you broke your neck and you need oh surgery God, immediately. Surgery. Yeah. And I said, oh, wait, no, mm, can I get a second opinion? He says, oh, no, there isn't time. And so then I start to really freak out. And so I say to him, am I going to be all right? And he says, we're going to do everything we can for you. Oof. Which is not the answer I was looking for. So, and I'm, and they've given me, you know, they gave me like Dilaudid or something. I'm like, I feel nothing. Like I'm in so much pain. You have no fucking idea. And they actually asked me, interestingly, there, this woman from the hospital comes when I first am in the bed before they take the x-rays and they say, so what happened? I say, I fell down the stairs. And, and what I realized in this line of questioning is that they think I was pushed down the stairs. Oh. That there was like domestic abuse, right? And when I say, no, 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 that, that isn't what happened. And then, they, so they take my blood and they say, you have opiates in your blood because <laughs> of the Vicodin. And she said, I said, oh, yes, I took, I had one Vicodin left over from dental procedure and I was in so much pain. I just took it. And she says, is that usual for you? And I was like, what? No. When I tell you, when you ask me, what is my pain on a scale of one to 10? You don't even have a fucking number for this pain. Listen, lady, I am like, ah, I have never experienced so much pain in my life. So that was sort of a wake up call. Then they finally, finally, when they realized, okay, you need surgery and things are bad. And, and so they, you know, I went to ICU and they sort of put me in this fog state for until they found the surgeon, right? The guy, the, the guy that they wanted to do this surgery. And he did a brilliant job. He put a plate in my neck with about eight screws. But what had actually happened was I separated uh, C5 and C6. And my spinal cord was stretched within a millimeter of snapping. So like a cigar cutter, if you think of your spinal cord threading through that, I mean, and he said to me after the surgery, and I was in so, like, I was in pain, Ethan, when I tell you, I was in, I was in pain for a year. It took me, it was my full job, my full-time job to get back to where I had been. When I got out of surgery, I couldn't, I was so weak. I was, and my arms, I couldn't even lift my arms. I couldn't even bathe myself. I couldn't do anything. I had round the clock, you know, nurses for six weeks. They also, by the way, so fast and loose with the drugs, which seemed to do nothing. Again, when I started with occupational therapy, all the guy did was he was so lovely. And I would lie on this, you know, on the like massage table. All he would do was bend my fingers back. Like if you bend your wrist back and I would weep, I would, I couldn't like you I, never. And I've never broken a bone in my life, but you know, go big or go home. Yeah. Um. So my, when I started physical therapy, um, I started with a guy who really was brilliant and did a lot of deep tissue um, massage because everything was still on high alert in sort of seized up, right? And uh, and then I worked with my trainer who I've had now for 20 years. And we, 
he used to make me do this exercise, which I'll never forget. So I had, before that, I had done CrossFit. And I had stopped doing CrossFit by the time I fell, but I had sort of fallen in love with, I liked the, I liked the rigorousness of it. And I also liked the, um, that it's different every day. I like to compete compete against myself. I was the oldest one in the class by far. So I would always say like, listen, I will never finish first, but I will always finish. Right. Um, and they had started to say to me, well, Yardley, you know, you might get like 75% of your mobility back. And I thought, fuck you, you don't know me. So it was just like, it was my job, right? Yeah. And, um, and the surgeon had said, if you hadn't been as fit as you were when you fell, no way you would have survived that fall. You would either be dead, which is a strong possibility, or certainly paralyzed from the neck down. But like the muscles kind of held you together. Yes. He said, I've never seen an injury like this and somebody survive it. And the amount of time that you waited, he said, just... And that you went home, you were riding around in cars, like... You talking about getting into a taxi cab. I'm just thinking like if he hits oh the brake too hard, you're, oh. I mean, everything. It was unbelievable. So Dave, um, my trainer, we've been together since about 2001. So Dave is like, I will make this my job as well. And he also works with people who are not, he's super fit, but he works with people who are not super fit. So one of these exercises was because I couldn't lift my arms anymore. He would have me, I have a mirror in my gym at home and he would have me write the alphabet in erasable marker on the mirror from A to Z. I had to write it in a straight line while I was in a squat. Wow. I would get to the letter C and my hand would start to shake and tears would start pouring out of my eyes. And we did that for, has to have been almost every day, four or five days a week for a month until I could get all the way to Z and it was legible and in a straight line. How great. What a great day that was. It was unbelievable. Yeah. But I went from not being able to lift. I went from, you know, I mean, look, I'm tiny. And now I, there's I have some stuff, statistics on a board in my gym where it's at some point, apparently I could lift, do a 180 pound deadlift. Wow. What? Who is that person? <laughs> that was pre-fall for sure. Uh, the other day, I think I did 135 pounds, which is really good for me. It's awesome. So, and you know what? I'm like, I'm so fine. I just want to be really strong. Yeah. I would love to fit in. I have a massive wardrobe. I love clothes. And that's sort of how I gauge how my weight is up or down. It's up at the moment, which, and it's always about 12 pounds. Twelve. How can 12 pounds ruin your life, Yardley? But it can because of all that body dysmorphia. Sure. If and I so, saw a 12 pound difference on the scale, I'd be really upset. Right? Yeah. And some people are like, really? I mean, I mean, of course, people who are trying to lose 100, as you know, as yeah. you know. So, but I, so yes, I would, sure, I'd love to fit into some of the smaller sizes in my closet. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm grateful to be alive and really in a place where if I didn't tell you I broke my neck, you'd never know it. I never knew. No, I had no. I had no idea, and would have never. That would have never been something that I whispered to Paige. Hey, you think she <laughs> broke her neck? <laughs> you can see he went in the front. There's a little scar right here, and some people think it's a thyroid scar. 
but it's actually where he, now they go in the front because it was so high. The injury was so high. Wow. Yeah. But I, so the right side of my diaphragm is paralyzed. That happened from when I hit the wall, probably. Right. So I have really, I have one really good lung. The other one doesn't really inflate. Wow. That much. And, but you're back at it. Exercising. Yeah. Yeah. You seem great. Yeah. Yeah, back at it. And now, you know, we do, uh, we take some of the aspects of CrossFit that were good. We do do some lifting, but I like cardio too. So it's that. And we, some of the acronyms, you know, EMOM and WAD and shit like that. But Tabata, <laughs> yes. fucking fucked up shit like that. Yeah. Um, but I, for me, it's, it's about, it's about the game. Like yeah. I said, I like to compete against myself. And so Dave's job is to make sure that I never get ahead of him, which he's so good at. So if, if as soon as my brain checks out, I'm done. Right. Like, forget it. I just, I'm such a, I'm such a brat. Yeah. I, although I never complain. I do whatever he asked me to do until it's clear that you're going to drop that dumbbell on your head. Right. right? And, and, but, but that might be, that might be <laughs> like, a good thing right. to pay attention to. Like once your focus leaves you, maybe yes. you don't be lifting weights anymore. A hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I compete against myself only too. And if I ever get, and I'm generally lifting weights on my own and yeah, you can't, you cannot mess around with no. that. No. And it, I do, I like the, the discipline of having to switch gears from, you know, um, you know, the assault bike, that yeah. horrible thing. Mm-hmm. So getting off the assault bike and then, okay, I'm going to address the bar. Yeah. Right to do for your listeners who may not know, like if I'm going to do a deadlift or a power clean or something, which again, it's about, I like the, it's, it's a good discipline for me to have to shift gears like that. I think it keeps you nimble in some ways. And you got to respect. You so do. That kind of stuff. Yes, you do. That's why they are all like super old school weightlifters have certain principles that they won't. And it's almost like, I imagine at some point in in history, like people were getting sick when they were eating pork. And so it became a religious law. Like that's, we don't eat that. You know what I mean? Like uh, this thing's making people sick. So no, we no longer eat that. (laughs) And now today we have people no longer eating that. Maybe it doesn't apply in the same way, but you have all these certain kind of rules, like don't step over a, a, a bar. The barbell. Yeah. Right. You have to respect it because yes. it'll come back and crush you or whatever it is. Walk around it. You know what I mean? And and I think that came from people <laughs> tripping and having yeah. it roll on them. And, you know, they're good rules to follow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We have to be respectful of the weights. Yes. They will crush us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you, what do you, you, I think I remember hearing that you don't do a lot of cardio cardio because you're trying to build all this muscle, right? Well, I'm not building muscle, or unfortunately. You're, I would like oh, to. I'm, I'm, I thought you were. Didn't you do the, the, the T-Rex body fat saw thing? I have just been losing fat only. And there is some evidence that shows that you can build muscle and lose fat at the same time. It's really, really hard to do. And I 
I haven't. But to my point, I mean, I guess to me, like, oh my God, but that's still great. What an incredible win. You're losing the fat and you're keeping your muscle. That's the trick, keeping the muscle. That's what I'm focused on. I feel like that's really hard to do too. It isn't easy. Yeah. You kind of have to um, lose weight very slowly and then continually trick your body into believing it needs the muscle to survive. Right. And then it will hold on to the muscle because the muscle actually requires calories where the fat doesn't. So it can eat some muscle and kind of balance out like, oh, you're starving a little bit. If we just kill off some of this muscle, you won't be starving anymore. Like that's your body's first impulse. But if you lift weights every day, your body goes, well, that's how he's getting food. Yeah. He's out there hunting. Your body's stupid. It doesn't know I that know. you're in a gym. It's so behind the time. Yeah. <laughs> it has not. It's certainly not caught up to modern technology. No. Gyms and 7-Elevens and all of this stuff. <sighs> how do you deal with the feelings of hunger or do you not have them? I've, I've found occasionally I have hunger. If if I miss a meal or miss a protein shake or something like this, I get very hungry. And then I just eat. Like it's for whatever reason, if I'm in a meeting, if I'm doing something and I can't eat, I will wind up getting hungry. But the amount of food, when I went from uh, low carb to low fat, my my food doubled because so in just in quantity, it's kind of similar calorie wise. Um, like but different calories is what you're saying. Because fat is so highly caloric. So yeah. Of course. So like a gram of fat has nine, it requires nine calories to burn. Right. And a gram of carbohydrates is only four. So if you were to switch energy sources by weight or volume, you're going to get twice as much food, tw- two plus times as much food, you know, because it's. It's even more than just 2 times, 2.2 or something like that. Right. Um, so it's a ton of food. And and I think I eat around 300 grams of protein a day, which is just a ton of protein. And then a ton of healthy carbohydrates. You know, I don't eat sugar or anything like that, but I eat sweet Did you potatoes. Ever? And I, sugar wasn't my thing. I, I like cheeseburgers and fries, right. pizza, right. stuff like that. You're I like really savory stuff. Savory, yeah, yeah. yeah. And fat. I really liked fat. <laughs> so keto for me was like, you don't have to twist my arm to eat a steak. I'll eat the steak. You're going to put butter on the steak? Holy smokes. That's some steak. You know what I mean? Like, that's happy. And now I, I don't eat a lot of red meat. I eat a lot of chicken breasts with no skin on them. And it's super boring. And I just eat it going like, this is repairing this muscle. And this is repairing this muscle. You know what I mean? And how do you eat with your family? Because you have four girls and a wife, yes? Yeah. Um, (laughs) They, uh, it used to be um, that I would sublimate my dieting for cooking. So I would like the need to have some connection with food. I would just cook and I would cook stuff I wasn't allowed to eat. And my wife at one point said, what the hell is going on where every time you go on a diet, we gain weight? Like, (laughs) what is this? And now I kind of am eating so much and so meticulous that I kind of have just stopped cooking. And I don't need to have that connection. I'm like really kind of doing away with anything emotional with food. Right. And so they're kind of just on their own. (laughs) 
<laughs> do you still eat together as a family or yeah. is it easier for you to say, I need to have my meal, then I'll sit with you guys while we all... I do. I, I do both because I eat when I need to. And sometimes they're not ready to eat or they've eaten already, but I'll sit with them or I'll sit and just eat other food. I've taken Tupperware containers of food to restaurants and like just snuck it under the table, you know, <laughs> or I'll eat in the car and then I'll go and sit or I'll go and figure out something I can eat right. at the restaurant with them. Too. Right. I'm not such a stickler. I am a pretty good stickler. Because that's one of the things about these extreme diets is that they're incredibly antisocial, which again feeds into the eating disorder aspect of food isolating you from any other activity. Yeah. It's tough. It's so, it's, I mean, it's complicated. Yeah. It is a hard thing to navigate. And and I will try to, um, you know, I'll cook a lot of food and then Hopefully there'll be components that they like, like they like chicken, they like rice. They're going to just want some flavor added onto it and I'll eat it dry, you know? Right. Yeah. And do you think you can sustain that while you eat a lot, it's fairly austere in terms of no sauces, no skin, you know, what we would consider the tasty things. Right. Is this sustainable forever or until you get your ADABs? I, I have done this and I've done maintenance periods of this where the calories just bump up a little bit, like by 20%, the protein stays the same, but you just get a little bit more carbs and fat um, and go through a period of not losing weight. And I actually feel great eating this way. Um, so you don't miss anything. And you have your cheat day, which is... Well, I, I do that very rarely. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah. that's right. I remember you said that. I don't do that often. Wow. And it's never a day. It's always just one meal. Okay. But it is like every two months, kind of. That's... I haven't done it in I a mean, long time. I that's think the, not even... Yeah, the last time Paige was and I maybe are shaking right? you. Christmas Day was probably the last. Oh, and I, right. I remember you and I remember you talking about Thanksgiving where you had one bite of pie because there was going to be like family revolt if you didn't have or your daughters made it or there was some obligation yes. for it. You must have one bite of pie, please. Yes. And I will say <laughs> Clementine, who goes to school in Oregon, listened to that episode and was like, you're a liar. <laughs> You are a liar. You said you had one bite and that is a lie. And I was like, Clementine, you know, it's maybe hyperbolic, but a lie. I don't know that it was a lie. And she was like, you are lying. And I will reveal to everyone that you lied. You said one bite. You practically ate a whole pie. And I, and that is not true at all. But apparently I ate way more, more than, than a, a bite. bite. Yeah. Fair enough. And my kids are keeping me honest on that. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah. Clem they Clementine do. was furious. Not having it. No. So funny. No. <laughs> and I, you know, listen, I, it, whatever it was, it didn't get carried away. I weighed myself the next day and it was fine. And I had never, you know, and I was like, did you really perceive that I sat and ate a whole pine? She was like, no, but. It was more than a bite, you know, so somewhere in between the whole thing and a bite, which I think was closer to a bite was what I did. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I do think that's the lesson that you can have a cheat meal. You could even have one once a month or every couple of weeks. And it's when you do that three times a week that you get into trouble, right? Yeah. That you lose sight of your goals and everything sort of goes to shit. But one of anything probably isn't going to, is not going to kill you. Right. 
That's right. Or even alter the results that you're after. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you ha- it's got to be life. Yes. You know, and you have to be realistic with yourself of what you can do. And I've found the more time doing something, it kind of just becomes routine. You know, like when I did keto for a long time, I wasn't going around missing carbohydrates. Um, and when I first started on low fat, man, it was shocking. Like my idea of what pasta was going to taste like was not what pasta, apparently you need olive oil on pasta to make it taste good, you know? Sure. And and even looking at tomato sauces, they're all full of olive oil. So like that's out. And so you're just having a bowl of noodles that are dry and it doesn't really taste like what I thought it was going to taste like. So right. there was the initial like super disappointment of like, oh, I can't put butter or mayonnaise on my bread. <laughs> right, dry rice is not exciting. No. Dry pasta is not exciting. A dry potato is also not That's exciting. That's why they don't sell those at restaurants. Right. They <laughs> put sour cream and bacon on the uh-huh. potato or they cook it in f- deep fry and fat. Like that's delicious. So it's taken a while and now I don't miss the fat. And I'm, I just think like whatever you like whatever you can do, eventually it's going to be, it's going to be workable or you're not going to do it. Right. That's right. I, I was thinking, um, and I don't want to take too much of your time, but I was thinking when you asked me about when I finished with the eating disorders group, one of the things that I picked up or learned or somebody told me was you can have that thing, whatever that thing you consider to be sort of n- not good for you or, you know, if it's a bowl of ice cream, but do, is think about this. For me, this was helpful. Is five minutes of pleasure worth the two days of regret and self-loathing that will follow? So when I couldn't at first stop the, so successfully stop the binging and purging, you know, that when the urge was so strong and I thought, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to get through the next five minutes? How, you know, it was literally like that. I would think, okay, you can do that, but is that moment of pleasure worth epic amounts of regret after the fact? Right. You know, just think about, do it, but do think about the consequences. Because I think one of the things that you don't do when you're in the throes of your addiction are the consequences. No. Right? That if you're an alcoholic, I'll be late for work, or my wife will actually leave me this time, or, you know, I could get in a car accident, or, or, or any of those things. Yeah. I think it all requires a lot more kind of thought than I had normally put into anything I did. I kind of just went through life without much thought, without much understanding of of the consequences, of the intricacies of the dynamics. And when you really break it all apart, it's it's just kind of easier to look at. So the idea of, um, well, I'm just going to lose 200 pounds, that's a big thing to confront. It might be easier in the beginning to just get through the day. Right. You know? Yeah. I totally get that. I can't imagine looking at something that massive. Huge. Yeah. 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 I was looking at um, 
that thinking about different diets and the different diets I've done and thinking if I had started with the diet I'm on now um, in the beginning as my first diet without taking any break, without taking a single day off, it would have taken me nine and a half years of oh. dieting. Oh my God. To get to the thing. Now, I could say like that's only half the time it actually took because it took 18 years, but that was so many highs and lows and kind of figuring out what worked best and a ton of off days. Right. You know, and ton of days that set me back, years that set me back, right? Um, it's not factoring any of that in, but I think the only kind of way to do it is not to go like there's one uniform thing that works for everyone that you should be the beginning no matter what your size is to the end no matter what your size is i think it changes as goals change yes. as you know if you're just getting through the day maybe eventually it becomes easier to look at your long-term goal and adjust what your days look like to get there, you know? Absolutely. Yardley, thank you so much thank for coming you. in. Thank you. Thanks for having it's me. It's a real pleasure. It really was. Yeah. And now for some Q&A. This question is from Josh. He says, I've struggled with my weight my whole life and have constantly gained and lost weight. I finally made a shift in September 2017 where I lost 100 pounds and have been more or less maintaining it since then. I have described my journey as being physical, emotional, and spiritual as far as working through unhealthy relationships with food, exercise, and body image. I've wondered if there's been a spiritual component to your body transformation. Thank you for the question, Josh. I've never thought of it in spiritual terms. I have thought uh, quite extensively about it in mental terms, and I think what you're talking about, we could probably... Um, use either word unhealthy relationships with food i have in spades and i am constantly checking myself from walking down those paths i've also even had unhealthy relationships with exercise i was uh, obsessed with cycling for a few years and did about eight hours of that six days a week for just about two years and that was not something i could maintain and my body image, you know, I, I, I think that's just a weird thing. I don't know how it is for people who spent their entire lives being praised for how they look. So I, I can't know what it feels like to be them. But having not been in that category of, of person, uh, I do know that I, I don't know that anybody could be a bigger critic of me than me. And so I have this image in my head of what I want to look like through diet and exercise. I don't know that I've ever gotten there. I, or, or if I've gotten there numerically, I don't know it's, if the, the picture I had in my head ever matched um, what I thought the number on the scale would, would look like. You know, I think it is really important to congratulate yourself and to stay positive and to maybe even realize that we have no idea what we're going to look like through diet and exercise. We can be sure that if we're sticking to our diet accurately, that we're going to lose fat. But at the end of the day, the, the, there's another weird component, which is that we are with ourselves so much that the transformation 
isn't shocking. Like I, I know I've run into people who have who have gone like their eyes have jumped out of their heads, and I've been like, "What? I've the, you know I've looked like this for a long time now, and what's so shocking?" But they haven't seen me in a couple of years or or whatever it is, and so it's shocking to them. But for me, it's just a constant, steady transition, and so you know. If you're, if you have this image of in your head of what you want to get to, but you're getting there so slowly, so progressively, it, it, it is important to like look for certain milestones that you can kind of track. And it's hard to do that over the course of years. You know, one way could be taking a picture of yourself every day. I did that for a while. And then, and then you go like, you can start to see. The progression because maybe you look in the mirror today and you go like I haven't changed anything but if you have a picture from two months ago you will maybe be able to see that um, body image is a very tricky thing and and I don't think it's necessarily the most coherent thing so that's my answer Josh I hope that that was um, I hope that I I hope that I answered you if you have a question that you would like me to answer on the podcast please submit it to americanglutton.net Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.